God's really good at organization. We're not. Um, yeah, so no matter how good you are at organizing your life, God is always more organized. And, I, and I, you look at from the beginning of time, before he said, let there be light, he said, I'm going to send my son. This wasn't a secondary plan once Adam and Eve messed up. He, he had everything organized. We don't see, we read Jesus died on the cross. He, was, he suffered for us. He um, died for us. He bled for us. But we don't see the background work that was happening while this was happening. We don't see what God was doing while Jesus was on the cross, suffering, being abused, being tortured, mocked for us. And I don't think we can adequately describe in the, the words that we have and the knowledge we have of the, the Word of God to describe what was happening on that Friday. To describe what Jesus was going through, to describe what God was going through. We, don't, we understand that Jesus suffered, but think about this. If God is three in one, that means he is one person with three unique characteristics. If Jesus was suffering, what was the Father doing? He's having to watch his son, watch part of him go through the, the pain, the, all of our sin being brought on him. And, and you have to understand this. This is the father releasing this on his son. He's not just like, okay, let, the, let, it, let it go. He's actually taking it and he's, taking it, he's saying, I'm going to take this and I'm going to place it on your shoulders. He is not saying, okay, release the sin on him. And then he's just like, he, he's physic, he is in the spiritual realm. He is taking that sin, which, and he's saying, this is what I'm placing on you. That's hard to think about. Think about taking the one that is the dearest to you and taking everything that is wrong and placing it on their shoulders and saying, you are now responsible for it. You are now the, the owner of everything that I am placing on you. It's other people. It's everything they've done. You've not done it, but I'm now placing it on you. A perfect person being placed, God taking and saying, I'm now going to place all of the sin of the world on your shoulders. And while you're going through immense physical pain, I'm going to now take immense spiritual pain and I'm going to put it on you. And it's not going to just sit on you. It's going to press you down. That's a, that's a huge concept right there. And I don't think we can adequately understand it or understand or translate what was happening on that day. So I'm going to read a little bit of this to you. So, and this wasn't before, this, Jesus didn't start suffering on the cross. He suffered before the cross. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. Jesus isn't in the garden Verse 36 says, Then Jesus came in with them, and they called the place Gethsemane, or the Olive Press. And he told his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. And taking with him Peter and two, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be grieved and greatly distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved, so that I am almost dying of sorrow. I'm reading from the Amplified Version right now, so it's, it's going to expound on it a little bit. But he's saying, I'm grieved so much. I know what's happening in my spirit. I know what's happening because I am God. I see what's coming. But he was still grieved. He was still distressed. He says, stay here, awake, and keep watch with me. 
I haven't really looked into that stay awake and keep watch with me. There's some deeper meaning to that because there was something about unity and God was, Jesus was asking his disciples, stay with me, help me. And then it says, verse 39, says, after going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, if it is consistent with your will, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but your will be done. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you men could not stay awake and keep watch with me for one hour. Keep actively watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And everybody said amen on that. In verse 42, it says, He went away a second time saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he came and found them sleeping again. That would really, really make me angry. You have to understand this is, so this is, um, this is late Thursday night is when the Passover, uh, when, when, excuse me, when Jesus had the Last Supper with his uh, disciples and his friends. And they usually got done maybe right around 2 a.m. So Jesus goes up around 2 a.m. up to the garden. And he's, he says, hey, you guys stay here. I'm taking uh, my closest ones with me, James, John, and Peter. And he says, watch with me, stay with me. And he, he's, he's asking his friends to be with him, to um, help him through that process. He says, stay with me, stay awake with me. And he says, so it's about, let's just say 3 a.m. So he's in the garden praying and he says, if you can take this, this burden, if you can take this cup from me, Father, Please do it. If there's another way around this, if we can do this without me having to do this, can we please do this? But it's not what I want. It's what you want. It's not my will in this matter. It is your will. So back to verse 43. And he came and they found them sleeping. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words once more. Then he returned to his disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Listen, the hour of my sacrifice is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners, whose way and nature is opposed to God. Get up, let us go. Look, my betrayer is near. And at that moment, Judas comes in and betrays him. It's... It's ironic, and and it's just God's perfect will in that time where he brought Jesus to Gethsemane. What was happening at Gethsemane? They were pressing olives. What happens when you press? Stuff comes out of those olives. They make olive oil with it, and they were pressing. And this is the time where Jesus was coming into knowing what was going to happen, and the pressing down of him began. You know, have you ever had something so on your mind that even while you're at a, um, you're, you could be at a party, you could be at some kind of gathering, and everything's happy, but it's on your mind, and it is just sitting there, and you, you, you can pretend to enjoy the time, but it's, it's just there. If we went through that, I'm pretty sure that's how Jesus was when he was having the Last Supper. 
He's looking around saying, talking to Peter, talking to James, talking to John, talking to all of them. And he knows what's going on. He's like, this is the last time that we're all going to be together before I am crucified. This is the last time that we're going to sit and eat dinner together. And so Judas comes, kisses Jesus, marks him as the one that they have to arrest. And then Jesus, between about 3 a.m. and about 6 or 7 a.m., goes through multiple trials, which none of them were actually legal in Jewish culture. They, they were forced quick trials. They were never brought to the proper procedures as Jewish tradition would require for a person to be tried and convicted as guilty. Matthew 27, they find him guilty and they, they, uh, they're given a choice of, hey, let's free someone who is a violent criminal, killed multiple people, murderer, or we can keep, or you can have Jesus. And they say, give us Barabbas. Give us the man who is a murderer. Give us, set him free. Give us the person who is on trial for murder, and let's sacrifice Jesus. Let's crucify Jesus. So now, all those trials are over. Matthew 27, verse 32, it says, now they were coming out. And this is, they're coming out of the, high, uh, out of the um, court and, or where they were um, trying Jesus. And it says, they coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon whom they forced to, into the service to carry the cross of Jesus. And when they came to the place, place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, they offered him wine mixed with gall. It's a bitter-tasting narcotic to drink, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his clothes among the cast, casting lots. Then sitting down there, they began to keep watch over him to guard against any rescue attempt. And above his head, they put the accusations against him, which read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. You know what's funny is, is this, is they put all these false accusations against him of what he had done, that he was making trouble. But the one thing they did right that was the truth was Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. At the same time, two robbers were being crucified with Jesus. One of the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were hurling abuse at him and jeering at him, wagging their heads in scorn and ridicule. And they said, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down off this cross. It's so funny listening to the teachings of Jesus, how they didn't understand when he said, I will rebuild I will tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. They're thinking, oh, he's going to rebuild this physical structure, but we understand it now. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his body being broken down. He was talking about being destroyed and then being rebuilt. Verse uh, 
42, he says, he saved others from death. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from his cross and we will believe him and acknowledge him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God, the robbers who had been crucified with him also began to insult him in the same way. And now at the sixth hour, which is noon, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud, agonized voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard this, they began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took the sponge and soaked it in the sour wine and put the reed and gave him a drink. But the rest said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. So, Verse 45 and 46 are, are, is, is a very tough verse because we look at the cross and we think it was a place of Jesus' um, murder. We think of it as, but Jesus wasn't murdered. He offered himself. He wasn't taken by force and murdered. He gave himself up willingly because Jesus didn't have to go. Jesus could have just, they could have come to the garden. He said, nope, moved, and he would just, walked by. But he didn't. He offered himself up as a sacrifice. And we look at the cross as this place of, of abuse and murder and torture, but it was really a place of power at that moment. And, and it doesn't sound like it was, and it doesn't, you don't, you wouldn't think it, but Jesus was standing there by his own will. Yes, he was being abused and he was being beaten and he was you know nailed to the cross but he was there by his own free will and not many people would do that i can't think of any but one but he he left himself up there because he was responsible for us so that that moment on the cross those hours on the cross were yes they were brutal but they were a place of power and then in verse 45, it's a culmination of, of everything that's gone on for basically the last 12 hours. And then in verse 46, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the place where we will never understand this because we'll never have to go through this. Is This is the moment where the Father turned his face from Jesus. This is where he turned himself from Jesus. Because he had to forsake his son in order for his son to be the perfect offering for us. Because we require death. God forsaked his own son. He, he basically said, you know what? I have to do this. So Jesus is going through this agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine when he put the sin of the world on his son's shoulders? And then he has to not only do that, but he now has to turn his face from him and say, I can't help you anymore. And then he turns his face from him. Verse 50 says, Then Jesus cried out again in a loud, agonizing voice, and gave up his spirit voluntarily, sovereignly, 
dismissing and releasing his spirit from his body in submission to his father's will and plan. Jesus did. He willingly gave up his spirit. It wasn't, oh, well, you know, I guess it's time. Take it from me. No, he willingly gave up himself. He cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Said, it is my time. It is my time to die, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to release myself. I don't understand what God was going through, and I don't understand what Jesus was going through in the spiritual realm because of the, the emotion going through. They are one. And I, I can't imagine that, that God wasn't in immense pain. The Father wasn't in immense pain while his son is going through this. The, the emotional pain that, that it would just tear a, a person apart to watch the one they love go through that. But what was God feeling? Because they are one person. I, I, don't, we, I don't think we can ever fathom that. That's the, the question I want to ask. It's like, when you were going through this, or when he was going through this, what were you feeling? And Jesus gave up his spirit. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints, God's people who had fallen asleep in death, were raised to life. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. Now the centurion, who was with him, keeping guard over him, when he saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, was terribly frightened and filled with awe. And he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I can't imagine being on that hill, watching that happen, watching the ground shake, and then watching tombs open, and people that have been long dead, saints that have been long dead coming out. I'm like, if that didn't freak you out, I don't think anything would. And so they put him in the tomb. Most people who were crucified got thrown in a pit. They weren't buried. There was, if you looked at uh, Roman culture, when you had thieves, if thieves weren't buried, they were, there was a pit dug and a body was thrown in and the next body was thrown in and it wasn't covered. It was just, this is the pit outside of town where the dead bodies are. But a rich man said, you know what, this is the son of God and I'm going to give up my family tomb. I'm going to give up my burial spot for him. And they put him in the tomb. And they wrap him with cloth, myrrh, to keep the body from decomposing so quickly, and the smell. When the wise men presented gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it wasn't about his birth. It was about his birth and his death. Because frankincense and myrrh were used in the embal or not embalming, but the, the wrapping of the bodies when they were done. Rich men got wrapped in that because when people would come into the tomb, so they wouldn't smell. So the wise men gave him things for life and things for death. But on the third day, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, Sunday, today, 
at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. I don't know if I would have went in after the tomb was, after those rolled away. I'm like, what is going on in there? I'd be a little chicken, I think. When I, you know, you're like, hey, let's go. And you know, it's open. I don't know. You know, it's the ladies that did it. Yeah. You're brave. But they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise again on the third day. And remembering the words and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother of Mary, or excuse me, the mother of James, Mary, and the other women with them that told these things to the apostles. A bunch of chicken men sitting up in a room while three women have to go to the tomb to find out that Jesus is risen. You would think that they would be with bait, like just waiting for that. They'd be sitting there waiting for the stone to roll away. Like he said he was going to do it. He said he was going to do it. But no, they're hiding. But the women are like, let's go see. But these words seemed to, to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. In some translations, it says the apostle or the disciple that Jesus loved ran to the tomb <laughs> because, of course, he thought he was the, the one that Jesus loved the most. Um, but why do we seek the living among the dead? You know, they, 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 they had been with Jesus. He said, I am going to be taken. He told them, I'm going to be back. But they, they, they were afraid to find out what Jesus had promised. You know, I, I look at the crucifixion. We look at the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And like I said before, there's so much in there we don't even see. Think about this. When Jesus died, where did he go? He took our sin so we wouldn't have to be sin. Where does sin send us? Sin sends us to hell. So Jesus... Uh, upon that agonizing death, his father forsaking him, all the weight of the world being put on, all the sin of the, of the world being put on his shoulders, he now goes to hell. And then he comes back from there. Because it wasn't just his death that he, had to, that he did to pay for us, it was also him going to hell for us. So we wouldn't have to. 
It was, oh, he died for us. Yes, he died for us, went to hell for us, so we w- and became sin for us, so we wouldn't have to know that. If that's worth it. Because God's master plan, he knew what his son was going to do to redeem the souls of men, to redeem the lives of men, so we wouldn't have to live separated from God. Jesus in immense stress and immense pain, and then his father turning his back on him because he had to forsake his son. It was part of the will of God to forsake his son. Then, not only that, but has to go to hell because his, his father knew that I have to send my son there if I'm going to redeem everybody in this world. If I'm going to redeem these people, my son has to be executed, delivered into the hands of the enemy. But on the third day, he rose again. Because when he went to hell, he didn't, he didn't go down there and do a, a, a small time of, of incarceration and then come back with good service. He came down there, went down there, spent time there, and he said, you know what? Oh, by the way, when I come back, you have no more power. It, it, the cross wasn't, it was submission in power. And there's something about us submitting to the will of the Father that is powerful. He was submitting to God and he said, you know, I'm going to submit to this. I'm going to be bruised, broken, beaten, killed for this. But when he submitted to his Father, the, the ultimate plan was, I'm going to bring him into a place of death, burial, torment, but I'm going to bring him back out of it. Satan's like, oh, you know, I got him. He's here. I do it. And Jesus is like, oh, by the way, this was part of the plan. Surprise, surprise. And he says, by the way, I'm going to take your keys to death. Those are now mine. You have no more power over me. You have no power over them. Those are now mine. I have defeated you because what you thought was a defeat was my, actually my submission, part of the tricky will of God to fool you because you thought you knew it all. And now I'm coming back with power, with authority. And what did he say? With all authority that I have been given, I give to you. So those keys that he took, He's like, oh, by the way, these keys are no longer yours. They're mine. I've confiscated them. I'm now giving those keys, that power, to my followers, the people who love me, the people who serve me, the people who have given themselves and given their lives up for me. Peter, though, heard the tales and he says, there's something going on. Peter, who is... The, the, the wackiest one of them all who wants to call down fire and lightning and destroy places. But he's like, wait a minute. He's listening to these women. He's like, these crazy women talking about this stupid stuff. No, I don't understand. They're always, he's like, I, they should just be safe up here with the rest of us where it's safe. And then he's like, wait a minute. He's not there. Yeah. He's not there. He's not there. What was Jesus talking about? He's not there. What did Jesus say about that? Oh. <gasps> Rebuild the temple in three days. Oh, snap. (laughs) And he's like, wait a minute. 
that light, that, that light bulb goes off above his head. The Holy Spirit's like, pulls the cord for him, and he's like, wait a minute. Jesus said three days, and he will be back. And Peter, I can just imagine Peter doing the same thing that Elijah did, pulls his robe up so he can run and just takes off running for the tomb. Holding on to it and saying, he said he'll be back. He said he'll be back. I got to go see. I got to go see if my Savior is back because he said he would be back. The culmination of all the events the garden, the pressing, the crucifixion, the weight of the sin, the abandonment of his father, going to hell, taking the keys back. Can you imagine? It was kind of like a Trojan horse. He dies, he goes to hell. Satan's like, I got him. Or when he shows up, he's like, why are you here? I think it was more like, why are you here? He's like, oh, by the way, here, let me explain what was going on with the rest of the plan that you didn't really know about. Um, I'm here for that little key ring of yours. It's mine. But the culmination of it was not all of that, but was when the fulfillment of the prophecy said, he self-prophesied, I will rebuild this temple in three days. It will be destroyed. And Peter's like, oh, wait, this is what he was saying. And he goes to run to find his Savior. That song we were singing earlier says, though our sins are scarlet, you have made them white as snow. Peter is thinking about what he has done. We don't even need to know the whole, you can, you can read the story of what Peter did during the, the crucifixion and during the trials. And Peter's like, wait a minute. Even though I did this, He's coming back for me. Even though I, I said this, I didn't know him, I denied him, I, I swore that I didn't know him, he's still coming back. He told me he was coming back. He was given over into the hands of sinful men so that he could be sinned for us. He gave himself up to evil people to be murdered and allowed himself to be offered upon, offered up as a sacrifice for us. How much love does a person have, does God have, does the Father have, does Jesus have for us that he would do that? I, I think about that and I'm like, I'm a really miserable person. Because without Jesus... Without him, what are we? We're sinful. We're prideful. We do stupid things. We say stupid things. We, we, do, we have cruelty. But what Jesus does is this, is he comes into us. And he doesn't say, well, let's just put this in the closet. Let's sweep it under the rug and we'll put some new furniture out. What does he do? He tears it down and he, re he rebuilds new. He takes what needs to be destroyed and he takes us as when we offer ourselves to Jesus, when we give our lives to him, we say, you know, it's not me, it's you. I'm going to give my life to you. He says, well, you know what? Let's do some demolition. 
and he tears down what is in us. And he says, it's a slow process sometimes, but I'm going to rebuild in you. We're going to build something new in you. We're going to rebuild fresh. It's not going to be remodeled. It's not going to be a new coat of paint. He goes, I'm going to make a new life in you. You're going to be born again. And when he rebuilds us, when he tears down the old and we give ourselves to him, he's like, well, we're going to make you shiny, we're going to make you new, and we're going to make it good. Because on our own, it looks dilapidated. It's, it's just not there. And I can't imagine living life without knowing that I have someone that I can lean on. Not a, not a physical person, not, a, not someone next to me, but to know that in my darkest times, in the darkness, in the, in the doubt, in the fear, in the anxiety, that I can lean on someone who is making me new. You know, Jesus, what Jesus went through, the rebuilding of the temple, it was prophecy for us too. He said, I'm going to tear down what you do, who you are, and what you are. When you offer yourself to me, I'm going to tear it down and we're going to rebuild new. We're going to build new foundations. We're going to put new walls. It's going to be shiny. It's going to be new. And you know what? Sometimes it's not going to go how we think it's going to go. But I'm going to build something in you that is fresh, that is new, and that has my spirit living inside of it. We are a temple for the Holy Spirit. We are a priesthood. We're called to do what Jesus did. We're called to live like he did. We're called to serve like he did. Greater love hath no man than a man that lays down, lays down his life for his friend. And what does Jesus call us? He calls us friends. And if we can't grasp what the Scripture says, if we can't grasp what God is doing in the Scripture, we need to start to look at what He did in us. Sometimes it's hard to understand what God was doing in these. We know what He did, but what, what, was, what was going on? And sometimes this can be daunting and it can be, it can be hard to read this without getting emotional and getting um, frustrated at ourselves. Thinking this man did this for me because of what I did, of who I am, who I was. But remember this, that the will of the Father was the will of the Son. It wasn't, oh, well, you know, my dad's got a plan and he's making me do this. No, it's this is the will of the Father and the will of the Son was the same because he is one. And because they both loved us enough, God was willing to lay down his Son and he was willing to lay down his own life so we could have a relationship with him. So that we could have a life with him. So that when we pass, when, they, when our our children put us in the grave and we're gone like paul said to be absent in the flesh is to be present with the lord so that when we are no longer alive we are with jesus 
we are present with him. The moment our eyes close, the moment we release, our spirit, our spirit goes. When we have that relationship with God, we are born again when he is living in us. I can't imagine what that's going to be like. Just to close your eyes and just boom. And then it's like, Jesus, like I've been waiting forever for this. It feels like I've been waiting my entire life for this. And to see the look on his face, to see the love in his eyes, to know that he is waiting for us. Saying, I'm waiting for them. Either I'm going to go get them or they're going to come see me. But he's waiting for you. He's calling to us. He's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to salvation. He says, I stand at the door and knock. He's waiting for us to access him, to open that door and say, come in. Come into me. Come into my life. Come into everything that I do, everything that I say, and be in charge of it. What's great about salvation is, is when Jesus was forsaken, when Jesus was, the weight of the world was put on him. Now we have the benefit of that. The face of God is shining on us. He is looking at us. He is for us, not against us. We have salvation. We have so many benefits from being part of the kingdom of God. Salvation is a byproduct of Jesus' sacrifice, of God's master plan to redeem the world so that we could be one with him. I don't think we can adequately tell a story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think we can understand the love of God through the limited amount of scripture we have about that for it to change our lives. We don't need all the information for it to change our lives. We just need to understand the basics of what he has done for us and allow him to change us and it will change us. It will redeem us. And that in a nutshell, will allow us to have eternal life, to be connected to the Father forever. The benefits of what his family has, we get those. You guys close your eyes. I think sometimes we forget to recognize and be thankful for what we do have when it comes to our relationship with God. You know, it says that he died for us so we could have um, a relationship with the Father. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I think sometimes we, we forget about that in our daily walk as, as Christians. You know, our sin is what separates us from Jesus. And, and it might look like it's this giant, you know, valley of sin that keeps us from 
from being with him, but it, it really isn't. You know, the cross was, was, was a, a vertical and horizontal structure. And we look at it and, and we always say that the cross was a, a bridge between God and man, that Jesus was that, that moment of God reaching towards man. What the cross was, was God reaching towards man, but Jesus was bringing heaven to earth at that moment so that when the veil was torn, when everything was ripped apart in the temple, that it was God wasn't saying, I'm here, you have to be this to come to me. He's saying, I'm here, come give me your life and I will make you new. And Jesus is just calling to us today. He's saying, you know what? You may be saved. You may be on your way to heaven. You may have just, you may have been raised in church. You may have been um, gone to every Sunday school, every, heard every scripture, read every scripture. You may have never heard of Jesus, but he's saying today is the day you can come home. It's just taking that moment and saying, Jesus I surrender my life to you. It's your will in my life. I give you my life. Jesus is just waiting for us. It's not hard. It, it's, it's so simple just to, to say, you know what, man, I am a Christian, but I need, to, I need to give my life back to Jesus. I just need to give my life to him again because I've had my will involved in it. I knew the things, I read the books, I read the, the Bible, but you know what? I didn't quite understand it. Jesus is just waiting for us to give ourselves to him. And all it takes is just, Jesus, I surrender myself to you. I give my life to you. You know, when we come to Jesus, we come with nothing. But Jesus is saying, you come with nothing, but I give you everything. I give you eternal life and I give you freedom and I give you salvation and I give you a relationship with my Father, but all I'm asking you to do is surrender your life to me. That when we do that, what we do is we allow him to lead us. We allow him to guide us. And when that happens, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're walking with his truth and not our truth. Let's pray.